Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the National Rifle Association is in turmoil. It filed for bankruptcy this past January after the New York State Attorney General accused the gun lobby group of financial misconduct and sued to dissolve the nonprofit, all while under the leadership of CEO Wayne LaPierre. NPR's Tim Mack has written a comprehensive account of the greed and incompetence at the top levels of the NRA. We'll talk to Mac about the NRA's fall and why the hard right player in U.S. culture and politics may be down, but not out. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For his new book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA, Tim Mack of NPR dives deep into the inner workings of the National Rifle Association with more than 120 source interviews, thousands of pages of documents, and audio recordings of private meetings. Mack creates a portrait of an organization ultimately beset by gross mismanagement and financial misconduct, much of it caused by NRA CEO Wayne LaPierre and his wife Susan. But Mack also traces the gun lobby group's strength even after major mass shootings and its success in making it far easier to get and use a gun in the U.S. We look at the impact of the NRA and whether the group's fall will lead to its dissolution. Joining me now is Tim Mack, NPR investigative reporter. Thanks so much for being with us, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. And remind us what the NRA is facing right now, its legal and financial threats that it's trying to stare down. Well, it's existed for now more than 150 years, and it's facing the most serious mortal threat to its very existence it's ever faced. We're, we're talking about a revolt among a large segment of its own membership, protests from members on its board of directors. Uh, it's got serious, serious financial problems. In 2018, it almost couldn't make payroll. That's a serious uh, problem for any organization to have. In terms of legal challenges, it's facing uh, a, a, a lawsuit from both the D.C. and New York attorneys general, uh, accusing them essentially of uh, corruption in the tens of millions of dollars and seeking to dissolve the organization entirely. So as a whole, this really adds up to a various, very serious set of challenges. Gosh, it must be a difficult environment to work in as a rank and file employee. How has the atmosphere changed? What have they been telling you? Well, you know things are bad at your workplace when uh, they stop offering free coffee. 
right? <laughs> you know, uh, and and the uh, they no longer give you know um, a free coffee, tea, and water at the you know little kitchen net that's that's on your office floor. And that's right. something that happened to the NRA in the 2018-2019 timeframe. Um, there's always been the you know two tiers of staff at the NRA, you know, and and the lower tier of staff, you know, when they travel, they have to uh, travel by bus or stay at the Holiday Inn, uh, and they get paid basically nonprofit wages. You know, nonprofit uh, workers and employees uh, who listen to the show will will know that nonprofit staff generally are, are asked to make a lot of sacrifices. You know, especially if it's to work for a nonprofit with a cause, which the NRA ostensibly does. So a lot of staff work for the NRA for many, many years, getting paid like extremely low wages to do very hard work. Hmm. And that's kind of one tier. And then on the other tier are the execs and uh, the CEO, like Wayne, La- Wayne LaPierre, uh, who are traveling on private jets and eating lavish meals in the thousands of dollars and expensing six figures in suits from an Italian menswear place on Rodeo Drive called Zenia. Um, all of these things add up so that, uh, you know, the, 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 there's this kind of hidden secret um, uh, ultra high earning tier that the execs get to enjoy while the, you know, the rest of the staff at the NRA bring in brown bag lunches. Because we're talking about this organization overall is like a $400 million organization. That's right. It's a massive organization and one without a lot of, uh, you know, adults in the room that are qualified, have a background in overseeing a $400 million organization, backgrounds in law or finance or management that would really uh, let you have some sort of accountability with the organization. And that's also one of the main issues that the NRA faces so much legal and financial trouble right now. When would you say the group was really at the height of its power? Would it be the Obama years? I think the Obama years going into the Trump years. I mean, in the, the, the NRA has always been more successful when a Democrat uh, controls the White House. Um, and this was, uh, the Obama years were, were no exception. Um, the, the NRA really found a lot of success in fundraising and increasing membership. Uh, during the years when they could sell this fear, package this idea that the Obama administration or Obama himself was interested in taking away your guns, taking away your gun rights. Uh, and that worked for a really long time. One thing that the NRA really wanted to have happen uh, and uh, spend a lot of time working on and its membership really, really deeply wanted was the election of Donald Trump. Now, the NRA spent more on uh, on that cause, on on helping with Donald Trump's uh, election victory in 2016, than even Donald Trump's own super PAC, more than $30 million in support of that wow. cause. But the, the thing is that um, there's a real irony here, right? That as soon as Donald Trump gets elected, as soon as the NRA and its membership get what it's want, get what it has wanted for many, many years, um, then comes the collapse and a real lack of strategic vision on how to deal with it. Um, after Trump is elected, membership goes off a cliff. Fundraising mm-hmm. goes off a cliff. And in that contraction, in that financial contraction that follows, a lot of the corruption that had been hidden for so many years and uh, considered okay by some because money was really flowing in, all of these problems begin to bubble up to the surface. 
It's really incredible listening to you talk about um, the kind of fundraising that fear can create and the, and the fear that the NRA drummed up around the Obama administration, fear to the point where even basic um, legislation that would have increased background checks, which a vast majority of Americans supported some modest increases in terms of background checks, fails in the wake of one of the most devastating and horrific killings um, during Obama's tenure of 20 first graders and six employees at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And I was so struck in reading this section of your book that it was able to muster its political power to sink, um, I believe it was the Mansion Toomey bill in the wake of, of that national trauma. Could you talk a little bit about um, about Sandy Hook and how it really does reflect the height of the NRA's power? Well, a couple of things. I mean, um, the NRA, uh, for, for, for Sandy Hook to have happened, it was actually, strangely enough for the NRA, a, a real boon in terms of fundraising and, and membership numbers. Uh, it, it used the event as, as a kind of rallying call that, um, that the government was going to use the this, this terrible tragedy as a way to um, infringe on their members' rights. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the big response, the big legislative response you mentioned after Sandy Hook was this, this proposal called the Manchin-Toomey legislation. And it did a lot of things, but one thing that it did was um, expand the number of gun sales that would be subject to background checks and make it nearly universal. And this has been something that the NRA has in the past been okay with it. You know, um, the NRA uh, after Columbine said that it was open to this idea, even some NRA lobbyists who worked on the issue. I mean, obviously staunch um, second amendment advocates uh, thought there was no problem at all with supporting legislation like this. Most gun sales in America right now involve background checks. So expanding it uh, to just cover all of all of these uh, these gun sales uh, was not a huge sacrifice to that. Now the NRA took part in these negotiations right. with Democrats and Republicans. They were actively involved. They helped write uh, some of the text of the uh, of the negotiations for for gun legislation, um, and uh, they inserted all sorts of kind of sweeteners for gun owners in the in the bill, uh, but ultimately pulled out at the last second and doomed. The legislation to failure um, in the Senate, and you know that, that's it's a really interesting tale about how the NRA has changed over the years, uh, how their standards and, and the standards of uh, of their members about what constitutes Second Amendment, you know, the rights guaranteed under the Second Amendment, and this kind of inside uh, inside baseball about uh, how legislation gets crafted, created, and ultimately in this case, scuttled. Yeah, and I still remember the speech that Wayne LaPierre gave, where after this killing, he said, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, and basically was advocating for more guns in school, which of course would benefit the NRA. And so using this as an opportunity to say that more guns were needed was pretty, pretty breathtaking in the wake of of that event. And I am 
also struck by hearing you talking about how the NRA wasn't always like this. I mean, you said that they would have been willing even after, say, Columbine to have thought about increasing background checks and the guns that were subject to it. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, when and how they started to change? Because as you document, they supported waiting periods, bans on silencers. When would you say was the first indication? Well, it's a long pathway. I mean, there are a lot of turning points for the NRA. Um, I think Sandy Hook was a, was a major turning point, the NRA. Um, you know, before Sandy Hook, one of the NRA's most important strategic um, resources or strategic allies would be the support of Democrats who agreed with them on guns. Um, they, they found it very, very useful to have this coalition that was bipartisan. Um, after Sandy Hook, the NRA kind of not only drops this idea, but it also doubles down on this idea of a culture war, this conservative culture war. Um, and top NRA execs believed after this point that, that the NRA wasn't just a gun organization or a firearms organization, but it was an organization that was meant to safeguard um, what they viewed to be Americans' rights on all sorts of issues, mm. uh, whether related to guns or not. And so you see them start to break out and uh, start to fundraise and message on things like race and immigration uh, and crime. Things that, you know, if you really look at the, sec at the, at the NRA's original mission, it really begins to stray from its um, primary purpose. Mm. We're talking with NPR investigative reporter Tim Mack about his new book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. What you're raising, Tim, just really raises the question of whether or not if the NRA completes this downfall, how much of a change that would really create in the U.S. If you want to join the conversation with your thoughts, you can call us at 866-733-6786, email us forum at kqed.org, or post your thoughts online. We'll have more with Tim Mack right after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with NPR investigative reporter Tim Mack. His new book is Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. 
where Mack interviewed over 100 NRA insiders, poured through thousands of documents to paint a portrait of an organization dogged by financial misconduct and fractured leadership. What questions do you listeners have about the inner workings of the NRA? Are you a member? And, and what do you think about the recent events? Were you a member? Why did you decide to leave the organization? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And this listener tweets, I sincerely hope that the NRA doesn't have a future when they oppose sensible regulations after Columbine and Newtown, when they refused to defend Philando Castile, who had a permit to carry, when they defended bump stocks after Las Vegas. Nah, let them end in disgrace. Jim Mack, before the break, you were talking about how the NRA strayed from its original mission. And I was struck to learn that its original mission was really around gun safety, not so much gun rights. Well, that's right. Um, not only gun safety, but also just kind of uh, marksmanship and sportsmanship and, and, and things like that. It, it was formed after uh, the Civil War um, by military officers who were appalled at the U.S. record on marksmanship and um it, at that time you know there was this idea that you'd have you'd line up infantry in a row and they would all fire a fire in a general direction in unison and uh you know there was some controversy uh, about whether you would want to teach individual soldiers how to shoot and aim their shots accurately they there was there was the predominant idea in military circles at the time was that teaching individuals how to shoot uh, accurately would inspire undue uh, and improper individualism on the on on um, on the part of the shooters, and that wasn't helpful in, in military strategy. Um, but of course, they were wrong, and and the NRA's original founders were right that that marksmanship is obviously a very important part of soldiering. Um, uh, over the years, it develops into an organization that is focused on gun safety. A lot of NRA members come, you first come into contact with the NRA, not through politics, but really through gun safety classes. It's very common all across America for these classes to be taken by people who uh, uh, you know, obtain their first firearm or when they reach a certain age. Uh, this has been a primary um, source of bringing people into the NRA for many, many years. Uh, and what's interesting is that in recent years, the amount of funding that's been put towards things like gun safety or uh, recreation, outdoor shooting sports, that sort of thing, um, have dramatically declined at the NRA mm -hmm. as they face these tremendous legal and financial issues. Well, let me go to caller Dan in Santa Clara. Hi, Dan. Hi, good morning. I have a point of clarification. In the wake of uh, September 11th, um, a friend of mine got together and we started talking about NRA positions and it seemed that as my friend put it they were becoming a wholly owned subsidiary of the republican party i'm a liberal democrat and so at that point i dropped out of the l uh the nra was i in my own bubble in terms of membership were there more centrist Dems who are still part of the Demo um nra because i think you said it was a more recent phenomenon where they became lock stock with the cultural matters and all that. So yeah, I'd appreciate clarification on that. Yeah, sure. It's a great point, Dan. I mean, I am curious about the proportion of the NRA membership that really does support what NRA is and has been doing for the last couple of decades, as Dan 
points out or if it's much more nuanced, much more mixed? Well, you know, I think if you talk to a lot of NRA members now, I mean, there are certainly a lot of Republicans and conservatives in it. In the last few years have uh, bolstered those numbers. Um, but there are still a very uh, large uh, minority segment of the NRA that, that are, you know, let's say less political or even Democrats who uh, are progressive in all sorts of other ways, but think that um, the Second Amendment uh, should be interpreted in, a, in, in the way that the NRA supports. Um, what I will say is that uh, while over the last 20 years or so, there's definitely been a move away uh, uh, from the NRA by a lot of Democrats, uh, until about 2013, there were still quite a number of blue dog Democrats uh, and moderate Democrats who were supporting the NRA, supported by the NRA. Uh, now that's unheard of. One of the things that you were able to get through digging deeply into the NRA was access to audio tapes from a source in the wake of Columbine. These are meetings in the wake of the shooting in Colorado where 13 people were killed, 12 students, one teacher at Columbine High School. And I want to get into some of those tapes and play some for our listeners. But first, can you remind us what was happening in 1999, right after the Columbine shooting that the NRA was so worried about? So just by total um, uh, accident, just by, by coincidence, um, the, the NRA's annual meeting, their, their most important exhibition uh, and event of the year, uh, was happening in Denver. Uh, and it, it was scheduled for just a week and a half after the terrible tragedy at, at Columbine. And not far away, just a few miles away uh, in nearby Denver, Colorado. Uh, so this creates an enormous crisis. For the NRA, you can imagine the problem that they're facing. They've got all these posters and bulletins up bragging about, you know, their selection of firearms that are going to be at the exhibition hall and got radio advertisements on the airwaves, all while this community is in shock and yes. grieving. It's just uh, totally, um, uh, uh, you know, unsure what to do, how to re respond to what at that point was absolutely unprecedented. There had been school shootings before, of course, but the scale of it, and the violence of it, um, really marked uh, the start of a new era of more frequent school shootings in America. Uh, and so this is just such an important kind of moment in time. And the tapes get into the NRA trying to grapple with these issues in, in real time, trying to figure out what their strategy is going to be for uh, for responding to the shootings at Columbine as it relates to them. And this has enormous impacts in the decades to come. Right. Let me um, play some tape. This is from NRA lobbyist Jim Baker, who, as you say, is grappling with the juxtaposition of this meeting and uh, this recent horrific tragedy. At the same period where they're going to be burying these children, we're going to be having media within 10 miles of our convention center, the world's media, trying to run through the exhibit hall looking at kids fondling firearms, which is going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible juxtaposition. And then here's another cut from, it begins with NRA official Kane Robinson, where they start debating whether they should 
create a victim's fund and donate money to the students and the teacher who were killed during Columbine? Is there something concrete that we can offer, not because guns are responsible, but because uh, we care about these people? Is there anything? Uh, does that look crass or... Uh, like a victim's fund. Or yeah, we create a victim fund and, and we uh, we give a victim a million dollars or something like that. Uh, does that look bad or does it look... Uh... Well, I mean, that can be twisted, too. I mean, why why are you giving money? You feel responsible? No, well, you're true. It can be twisted, but we feel sympathetic and uh, respectful. I think... Listeners, and I'm curious what you found really interesting about this tape. I think listeners would find it interesting that they grappled with these issues in this way. Um, but I think one of the things that's so overwhelming about it is that there was so much more concern as to whether or not it would show some degree of responsibility on them um, than maybe necessarily what was best for the community. Yeah, the, the, the main idea in these tapes that's expressed over and over again is, are they going to try to pin it on us? You know, um, are, you know, can we respond to the, these shootings in a way that doesn't make it look like we're responsible or culpable in some way? Now that that's been a main thing. I mean, there's two and a half hours of tapes. Um, you know, as, as these NRA executives panic and try to figure out how they're going to respond. Um, and the big theme is how do we make sure that we're not seen as responsible for these shootings? Right. Um, actually, there is a cut that begins with current uh, CEO Wayne LaPierre and I believe the former or former head Marion Hammer, where they're speaking exactly about this. Um, let's play that cut. We have meeting insurance. I just screw the insurance. The message that it will send is that the, even the NRA was brought to its knees and, and the media will have a field day with it. And that meeting insurance was brought up in reference to the fact that they were considering canceling this meeting. So again, underscoring your point about responsibility. In your listening to the tapes, Tim, did you hear the NRA express or, or the people in this meeting talk at all about how to stop school shootings or the role that the NRA could play in in trying to address what for people was such a shocking event, horrific event. It, this is a call basically about who should be blamed and they don't want it to be them, not how to stop future shootings, not how to propose legislative solutions. Right, right at this point, the NRA is concerned primarily about how to avoid uh, any sort of uh, perception that they're the ones to be blamed in the situation. And over and over again, uh, they try to push it off onto other things. This idea that, oh, well, the Justice Department and uh, prosecutors aren't prob properly enforcing the law. Oh, the issue is really uh, the media mm. and the media's um, depiction of uh, how things unfold, or violence in schools is the result of uh, music or uh, culture or movies or video games. And it's almost a brainstorming session of alternative reasons other than guns 
that can be used uh, as, 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 you know, the core reasons why these terrible tragedies unfold. Yes, I remember um, that they did end up holding that meeting, and I think it was Charlton Heston who was president who said something like, the dirty secret of this day and age is that media ratings all too often bloom on fresh graves. So definitely saying that it's the media that is making, trying to make them look bad. Can you just remind us, they did end up holding the meeting, but did they change it very much? Well, they canceled a lot of the celebratory elements of it. Um, you know, the dinners, you know, there was originally a comedian who was going to who was going to do stand-up, uh, you know, um, they canceled the exhibition hall. But what they did keep was something called the members meeting. Mm. The members meeting um, is an annual thing that's required by the NRA's rules. And it allows, it's kind of like, you know, when uh, political parties nominate their presidential candidates. Uh, it's uh, kind of a, an open floor. People can propose uh, resolutions and try to change policy, question executives, if you've been in the NRA as a member for more than five years, you can um, give speeches and uh, it's kind of a free for all. Uh, and this was something also that was uh, on the tapes, you know, something that um, a lot of executives were deeply concerned uh, would get out of control after Columbine. Yeah, let's hear this cut of tape from Marion Hammer about uh, the members meeting, concerns about the members meeting and, and the potential of pulling down an exhibit hall during the members meeting, which is what showcases firearms? If you pull down the exhibit hall, that's not going to leave anything for the media except the members meeting. And you're going to have the wackos with all kinds of crazy resolutions, with all kinds of, of dressing like a bunch of hillbillies and idiots. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the worst thing you can imagine. I mean, it is incredible to hear them talk about their members, which, as you make clear in your book, is really the source of their financial power in such degrading ways. Well, absolutely. It's a real shock um, to hear them. And there's a lot more tape than just that, right, of them denigrating their own members, denigrating the very people who uh, send in checks, 5, 10, 15 bucks a month, that make sure that the NRA continues to exist. Um, and you hear them kind of uh, kind of looking down on this segment of, the, of their membership that is, generally speaking, the most passionate and the most dedicated and the most uh, interested and, and easily mobilized by the NRA itself. We're talking with NPR investigative reporter Tim Mack. His new book is Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. And listeners, you can share your reactions to what you're hearing or your questions by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Curious if you are a member or were a member and what your views of the organization are. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or if you just have questions and thoughts about the inner workings of the NRA. Kai tweets, it felt to me like the tobacco lobby was incredibly powerful back in the day, but we eventually saw legislation to curtail its use. How does the gun lobby compare to the tobacco lobby back in the 70s and 80s? Well, it's not, it's not a comparison I've, I've thought a lot about in, in particular. Um, I, I think that the NRA's lobbying power right now is, is pretty diminished. Um, uh, because of financial and legal problems. Right. Um, but what, what's behind the NRA, though? These millions of members, they remain very active, unashamed, uh, more mobilized and, and passionate than ever. 
Uh, and you know, even if the NRA's lobbying arm were to disappear tomorrow, um, these members would still exist and put pressure on legislators. You talk to lawmakers and you ask them, hey, what really worries you about the NRA? They're not worried about a lobbyist showing up in their office or even money, though money is helpful or hurtful in certain ways. They're worried about getting yelled at at town halls and they're worried about uh, their phone lines, uh, the phone line switchboards getting jammed up, their email inboxes get it, getting flooded. And that's really where the core of the NRA's power comes from. And until that is to change in some way, or its membership or a large proportion of Americans uh, are mobilized in, a, in, in the opposite way, in an equal or greater way, um, the, the, the debate is going to remain uh, very much stuck in the place that it is now. Well, Charles writes on Instagram, I've got good news and bad news for you in the pro-gun control crowd. The good news is that Mac is right. The bad news is the core of the NRA knows this and is moving towards more effective and in your mind, radical pro-gun organizations like the Firearms Policy Council. So I, I think Charles is sort of touching on your point there as the degree to which all of the financial and legal peril that the NRA is in, whether or not it really does mean that this organization is out. Well, I, I think uh, an even greater point is that, you know, let's say the NRA were to disappear. Now, it's in so much financial and legal pro troubles right now. It's conceivable. Um, it might not be the most likely outcome, but it's certainly conceivable that, that in the next year or two, the NRA may not exist in, in the form that we know it today. Um, the question is, how much does that change the, uh, the gun debate in the short term? Mm -hmm. I think lawmakers are still going to be wary of crossing it's this very, uh, very vocal constituency. Um, uh, obviously, there'll be less efficiencies in terms of you know, organization and the mobilization of, of voters. Um, but uh, it, it, once you start realizing that the NRA's real power comes from these millions of members, uh, you, start have, you start thinking about uh, just how intractable the issue really is in America right now. And one other point that has often been made about the NRA's power is the fact that the Supreme Court seems poised to potentially support an NRA New York affiliate in a case that would, you know, greatly expand the ability to people of people to carry concealed weapons. I mean, there is a lot that's happening right now that is a big question for whether or not it truly affects the broader impact of the NRA. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us, listeners. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Tim Mack about his book about the NRA. It's called Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. And you and, your, and you, our listeners, can join by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Email us, forum at kqed.org. You're talking about the resilience of this organization, the resilience of Wayne LaPierre. I mean, everything that has happened, and yet he still remains the CEO and executive vice president. I want to just talk about him briefly because you do spend quite a bit of time on him. In fact, your book opens um, with a scene at his wedding where Wayne LaPierre does not want to get married. And his best man is basically like, look, if you don't want to get married, I'll drive you out of here right now. But he eventually does it. And, and why was this a story, Tim Mack, that you felt like was important in terms of understanding Wayne LaPierre and how he runs the NRA? Yeah, you can't understand how the NRA faces such immense financial and legal trouble right now without understanding the character of Wayne LaPierre, who has been the head of the organization now for more than 30 years. Um, you're right. I, I opened with this wedding scene, this, this, this scene where Wayne LaPierre is, is at his wedding, which has started late because he doesn't want to get married, but he's ultimately harangued into the ceremony because, uh, because his bride and and the priests that uh, basically push him into doing it. And this results in this very awkward ceremony where he won't make eye contact with his bride. And all these NRA luminaries are watching on thinking how weird and strange this event was. But it explains a lot about Wayne LaPierre as a human. Um, you know, I, I, I did more than 120 interviews with people in and around the NRA um, to try to get a portrait of Wayne LaPierre as a, as a person. And while he has this public persona of being the staunch, avid um, uh, Second Amendment uh, uh, purist, um, in person, he is this very awkward and meek, weak-willed, almost cowardly figure, deeply, deeply anxious, uh, who finds it very difficult to make decisions and is surrounded by very powerful, strong-willed people like his wife, Susan LaPierre, uh, or uh, outside contractors who basically bully him into all sorts of decisions that lead to corruption down the line. Yes. Um, you know, you, Wayne LaPierre is portrayed uh, in public appearances as this, you know, expert and, and uh, advocate on firearms, but he's not really into firearms um, himself. And in fact, at times has been outright dangerous with firearms. Um, this is well known inside the NRA. In fact, uh, people, when, you know, they might not have done so well in the previous quarter might hear that uh, at, at their at their quarterly review that their punishment is to go, quote unquote, shooting with Wayne if they don't improve their uh, performance for the next quarter. I mean, it's it's just well known and understood that Wayne LaPierre is not really a gun guy. And of course, it's revealed that uh, he and his wife, Susan, are basically plundering membership dues for their own lavish uh, lifestyle. Can you just quickly describe one of the ways that um, their scheme worked in terms of how they and others would be able to basically rack up millions of dollars in costs for extravagant things and bill them back to the NRA? Yeah, I mean, we're talking millions upon millions of dollars in private jets and lavish meals and vacations to the Bahamas and Lake Como in Italy. 
one of the ways that they would be able to do this without even alerting their senior staff would be to use an outside law firm called Ackerman McQueen. Now, Ackerman McQueen has been almost symbiotic with the NRA for many, many years. And this outside ad firm uh, provided a lot of strategic advice and PR and crisis management help to the NRA. Um, that, of course, is legitimate. But the NRA uh, would use Ackerman McQueen almost as, as, a, as a pass-through. Here's an example. The, the NRA loved, the, the NRA's executives loved dining at this very fancy Italian restaurant in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, just outside of DC called Landini's. And they would rack up thousands of dollars in meals uh, in just one evening uh, and over and over and over again. But instead of paying for it, they would put the charges on Ackerman McQueen's credit card. And Ackerman McQueen would kind of mix this in generically with its billings to the NRA uh, claiming that they were, you know, expenses used to service their client. And in this way, NRA executives were able to repeatedly almost launder their mm -hmm. expenses through their outside advertising firm and back to the NRA to use nonprofit funds largely raised from its members to pay for things like, you know, Taylor Swift stylist, uh, private jets, uh, whether Wayne LaPierre was on the jet or not vacations, uh, meals, and over and over and over again for many years. Hmm. When the New York Attorney General finished its 18-month investigation into the NRA, they accused the NRA, uh, and Wayne LaPierre in particular, of contributing to the loss of more than $60 million in just less than three years of time. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the New York Attorney General is currently in court trying to dissolve the NRA completely. Why was somebody as weak-willed and awkward as you describe, why was he able to get so much power and stay in power? It's weird, right? That this is one of the main questions I try to answer in the book. Um, Wayne Lapierre is someone who didn't even want to be CEO of the NRA. He had to be kind of pushed into it like so many other things. Um, and his dream isn't to be the head of the NRA. He, he has told people since the 90s that what he really wants to do is retire and go open an ice cream shop in Maine. So how does he remain the head of this powerful, controversial uh, organization, this organization that is a magnet for uh, a lot of anger and frustration in this country as it relates to our gun legislation? Uh, well, you know, I, I think the answer comes down to, to his valuability, that being so easily pushed around, he's given a lot of powerful people around him deep incentives to keep him there, whether it's board members that make uh, money off of their seat on the boards, even though they're supposed to be overseeing the organization in terms mm -hmm. of accountability, or powerful vendors that make tens of millions of dollars a year uh, servicing the NRA uh, for dubious value, or, or um, top execs who realize that if they uh, keep Wayne LaPierre in place, they'll get these golden parachutes and the millions of dollars after they leave the organization for doing little to no work at all. Uh, over time, what is, is, has become clear is that in this chaos uh, and backstabbing, this culture that thrives at the NRA, Wayne LaPierre has been able to survive. And, and a lot of people find it in their interest to keep someone like him at the top to keep the money flowing. 
Well, Jody writes, does the author have a sense to what degree NRA members acknowledge the corruption at the NRA or do they think it's fake news? I mean, again, it's hard to talk about what, you know, nearly 5 million members might think, but I know that there are some people who have felt betrayed by Wayne LaPierre or the NRA. One of the reasons that you were able to get so much source material is because people were willing to talk after feeling betrayed by the NRA. I think that's true. And there are certainly a lot of people who feel like um, it's time for Wayne LaPierre's tenure at the head of the NRA to end. Um, and in fact, there are even groups of NRA members who are seeking to organize to try to push Wayne LaPierre out. There's one group, for example, called Save the Second, which is made up entirely of NRA members who are seeking accountability and transparency at their organization. Remember, the NRA is a membership kind of grassroots organization, one where, according to their own internal rules, uh, members can oust uh, the current leadership. The problem is there just hasn't been uh, a sufficient number of members who are interested in being involved and uh, doing just that during an NRA annual meeting Hmm. to organize and get enough votes to push out the current executive. Well, let me go to caller Carlos in San Francisco. Hi, Carlos. Hey, how are you guys doing? Great. What's on your mind? Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much for this conversation, which I've been enjoying. And in addition to corruption, I'd be interested in um, your thoughts about impact on the community. I'm a um, SFUSD substitute teacher. I substitute daily in the school district. And last week, for the first time, I participated in an active shooter drill with the third grade class Mm. that I was with. And literally having these eight-year-olds huddled under desks in the corner of the room, um, standing on the outside of the perimeter, guarding them, barricading the door with tables. Um, We often hear from the NRA after school shootings about thoughts and prayers. I'm curious whether your guest has any views on the NRA's position with regard to actual prevention proactively of this plague of school shootings. Thanks, Carlos. I appreciate that question. Um, And it's reminding me just how much the way they have reacted after school shootings, after Columbine, as we illuminated earlier, really did become their playbook. What are your thoughts on what Carlos is asking, Tim? Well, you know, this is one place where I think the Columbine tapes that we've been discussing um, is so instructive that these tapes don't show an organization eager to help prevent the next shooting or to, preve- to enact legislation in any area that might, that might help with the issue from firearms to even issues of mental health or um, increasing security in schools, any issue that um, might be used for prevention. The, the NRA is largely a reactive organization when it comes to these, these shootings. And, and I think what's notable is that their stands uh, trying to push off these conversations. They, they'll, they'll frequently say that after shootings, uh, it's just not the time to talk about politics. It's not the time to discuss legislation related to gun safety. Um, and that strategy over the last two decades has really worked as, as mass shootings in schools have uh, come and gone, um, whether it's Columbine or Sandy Hook, the shootings at Virginia Tech or Parkland, uh, the NRA has been able to push off the discussion and serious consideration of legislation uh, over and over and over again. 
and uh, that's that's the that's the reality of uh, uh, of their strategy and whether it's been successful from their point of view. And, and can I just say, Carlos, uh, the fact that you have to do an active shooter drill with your third grade class and and just what that says about where we are. Thank you for the call. We're talking with Tim Mack at about the impact of the NRA and whether the group's fall will really lead to its dissolution um, and then any other additional changes with regard to the way we deal with guns in this country. Mac has written a comprehensive account of the greed and incompetence at the top levels of the NRA as well in the book Misfire. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Denise writes, as the NRA wanes, is there an organization that is taking its place? There isn't an organization that really could equal or step into the role of the NRA. I mean, the NRA is really the only game of town when it comes to advocacy, um, membership of this size. There are, of course, other Second Amendment groups in America, um, but uh, they don't they don't stand uh, they don't really stand next to the NRA in terms of ability or uh, you know potential for mobilization in politics. If the NRA were to disappear, there'd be a, a real scramble to figure out how to organize Second Amendment advocates. Um, that may be a period of time in which gun safety or gun control advocates have a little bit of an edge. Um, but it, it, it's true that there isn't really a gun organization in America that stands really ready to take the NRA's place. Well, Elon writes, are NRA members still supporting the organization? Can it rely on its base? This seems to be a question that a lot of our listeners are interested in exploring. And I'm remembering at one point, Tim, you write in your book that the NRA is like a secular religion. And I guess I'm just struck by how much it feels like I know there was like a, a branding push of I am the NRA. Like, do you think it's an identity? It's become an identity to the point where even all of this that you're revealing might not move a lot of people? I think that's true, uh, particularly members of the board who are meant to keep the NRA accountable. The, the NRA has this massive 76-member board of directors, uh, largely picked, uh, handpicked by Wayne LaPierre and, and other top executives. Um, and you see them, uh, uh, and they don't really have the sort of backgrounds that you'd expect or want for an organization that brings in hundreds of millions of dollars worth of revenue. You'd want, you know, legal expertise and financial expertise and management expertise. But what you find are, you know, kind of gun culture and industry uh, enthusiasts and activists and figures. Um, and uh, for them, you know, a frequent question I'm asked is, why don't NRA members push their board of directors to oust Wayne LaPierre? Um, for them, being a member of the NRA, being a member of the NRA's board of directors, is part of their identity and is so important to them. They don't really want to make waves. I think it, it, it applies to a lesser extent to a lot of uh, NRA members who, who consider the NRA synonymous with the Second Amendment and who push back against any sort of critical reporting against the NRA or about the NRA as a, a, an attack on them and their rights and their kind of view of what uh, policy in America should be. Would gun gun manufacturers, the gun industry, hold sway over the NRA? Well, that's another interesting thing that um, that I examine in the book, and and uh, that is uh, illustrated in the Columbine tapes that we discussed a little earlier this hour. 
Um, a lot of opponents of the NRA think that the, the NRA is uh, kind of beholden to the firearms industry. Um, but what I found in, in writing and investigating this organization for many years is that it's really the opposite. Um, that the NRA largely with its members uh, leads the response that the gun industry is terrified of crossing the NRA. It, it's a bad day for any gun company if they criticize the NRA and the NRA puts out a bulletin to its members saying that so-and-so firearms group or company uh, you know, doesn't support your Second Amendment rights or, or whatever else. Um, the, the, uh, the gun industry in many ways is led by the NRA, not the other way around. Hmm. When do you think we'll get a ruling on the New York Attorney General's case, especially around this question of whether um, New York should dissolve the organization? Well, th that's going to go to trial. The latest estimate uh, is that that will happen in the spring uh, if there is no settlement. So um, uh, that's something that I'll be looking at very closely in the next year to figure out what happens to the NRA. I, I think it's going to have an enormous impact on the future of gun politics in this country. Well, we know that they've already lost a bid in their bankruptcy case to try to get it moved to Texas, right, out of Letitia James' jurisdiction. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So after the New York Attorney General filed this lawsuit against the NRA, the NRA tried to declare bankruptcy and use the protections of bankruptcy law to move their, uh, basically their charter out of uh, New York State and into Texas, where they think they'd have a more favorable political climate. Yeah. But a bankruptcy judge basically said that you can't use bankruptcy law in this way to avoid accountability and rejected uh, their attempt, saying that the bankruptcy filing was not done in good faith. Uh, and so now it's bounced back to New York. Yes. The, the legal action has bounced back to New York. We just have 20 seconds, Tim, but you did say that you think a dissolution would have a tremendous effect, even with everything that we're saying about their entrenched power. What do you mean by a tremendous effect, like an incredible effect, just very quickly? Yeah, I think that in the, in the aftermath of such an event, they would be disorganized, that that, 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 that side of the organization, that side of the movement of gun rights would be less organized, less able to mount a, a response um, than it traditionally has hmm. been. And that and could Tim, be an opportunity for its opponents. Tim Mack's book is Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Grace One, for producing this segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.